The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Man, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, may we never lose that sense of trembling. That right sense of fear that we should have is unclean people from an unclean peoples standing before you, the infinitely, ferociously holy God of the universe. May we never come before you presumptuously May we never come before you cavalierly. May we never presume upon your grace. May we at all times and in every way recognize that it's because of your son, Jesus Christ, and him alone that we may approach you now. Father, we don't come this morning looking for words that tell us how great we are. We don't come for this morning for some kind of spiritual pep talk. We come for this this morning for an encounter with you to see you, to know you, to experience you in these moments. Father, reveal yourself to us now in your word. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our text this morning will be Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. But before we read this passage together, I need to circle back and finish some thoughts that I began last week. On our last Lord's Day together, we covered Jesus' teaching about something or someone called the abomination of desolation. Now, as I told you then, many Christians have been trained to hear this and immediately think to some great future tribulation, a literal seven-year period of persecution and plagues and chaos. It's a time of great hardship under the reign of this man called the Antichrist that this one would enter into a treaty with the nation of Israel, that he would allow the Jewish people to recapture the temple mount, that they would rebuild the temple, only then at some point for him to reveal himself who he really is, to desecrate the temple and to demand that all peoples worship him or the one that he represents. We've been trained to understand that immediately following this great tribulation will come the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment by him of a thousand-year earthly kingdom. 
as I've told you all throughout our study of Mark chapter 13, if this is your line of understanding with regards to what Jesus is teaching here, you're in very fine company. There have been plenty of good and faithful and saintly men who have taught exactly this. I, however, do not believe that that's what Jesus is talking about here. I believe that's an inaccurate interpretation of this text. I don't find the Lord speaking here about some distant future event that is immediately followed by his return. Instead, it seems to me that Jesus is telling his disciples about the events, the signs that are going to come with the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. Now, it's helpful for us to remember the setting in which Jesus is delivering this teaching. You'll recall that Jesus on this Tuesday of Holy Week has left the temple for the final time. He's told his disciples as they marveled at just the wonder of this building. He has told his disciples that it will be destroyed, not one stone left standing upon another. That they then ask him, how will we know that this is about to happen? What will be the sign of their coming? We know that Jesus then spoke to them about the ordinary signs of the times, about the wars and the rumors of wars, about the selfishness of men, about the persecution, about the plagues, about the famine, about the pestilence about all the ordinary signs of the times that have come into creation with the fall of Adam and will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. These aren't the signs of the end of the world. They aren't even the signs of the end of the temple. And so when we see these things, we must keep our head. We must remain calm. We don't freak out like the rest of the world over earthquakes or wars or airborne viruses. We keep our head and keep, keep our eyes fixed on him. But then he moves on to tell them what the signs will be when the temple will be destroyed. He tells them that they will see one called the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. Luke seems to provide some clarity to us there because he says when we see the armies surrounding the city. It seems clear to me that the abomination of desolation is someone or something associated with the Roman army. Now, as I told you last week, Jesus borrowed this term, the abomination of desolation. He borrowed this term from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel's book, he speaks with apocalyptic and Old Testament imagery about this one. And this, this image would have immediately stuck out in the minds of Jesus' disciples. The first century church, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about when he used this phrase, the abomination of desolation. And this was critical because when they saw this thing, Jesus was telling them that they must flee Jerusalem immediately. The place was about to be destroyed, but it was Jesus' intent that by the working of his word that he would preserve his people, not exclusively for their case, but so that he could then take them and spread his gospels to the end of the earth. Now, my plan last week was to take Daniel's teaching about the abomination of desolation, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, and work through those. But I simply ran out of time. I had something like 2,500 words that I'd set aside to speak to you about that. But I believe that was God's mercy. I believe that was his grace. He was protecting me from turning what should have been a verse-by-verse study of the book of Mark and turning it into some exposition on the book of Daniel. So allow me just to say this this morning. As a faithful follower of Yahweh, a man that was living in exile under a number of pagan kings, God had given this man called Daniel some visions, specifically visions about the kingdoms of the world. Now men, they have loved for generation after generation to argue about what exactly these images represent. What king is represented by what beast, by what part of the statue, what nation is represented in each part of this image. But the important thing for us to understand is what God was revealing to Daniel is that all the kingdoms of the earth, it does not matter how powerful, it does not matter how mighty, it does not matter how ferocious, it does not matter how much success they seem to be having against God and the people of God, all kingdoms crumble in the end. We have watched as one nation after another has been replaced by somebody bigger and badder than them. Another nation that God has raised up, that it is truly God who places kings upon their throne and then he pulls them down at his appointed time. 
that this cycle is going to continue all the way until the very end when the kingdom of God comes and smashes them all. But Daniel had great concern, not just about all the nations of the earth, but specifically his people, the Jewish people. And so he went to God seeking guidance. What's gonna happen to these people that are yours? He found the writings of the prophet Jeremiah that said the people would remain in exile for 70 years. And so he goes to God and he says, God, what's going to happen with us? Because frankly, what he saw there was not true repentance. He didn't find a changed heart in the life of his people. And so he began to grow concerned. So he asked God, God, what sign will I see? What is going to happen to my people? And it's at that moment that God reveals to him this one called the abomination of desolation. This one is going to persecute the Jewish people. He's going to desecrate the temple, but that he himself will be destroyed in the end. Now, no matter what your thoughts about the end times, no matter what eschatological stripe you bear, almost all Christians seem to agree that what God is revealing to Daniel is a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Hellenist king from the Seleucid Empire. He was one that had come in and persecuted the Jewish people in the year 171 B.C. As a matter of fact, we're told in the year 167, he forbid all ceremonial worship of Yahweh. In addition to that, he demanded that all the people worship Zeus. He then stepped into the temple, a place where he ought not be, and he sacrificed a pig upon the altar. Now, you don't need to be an expert in the law to know what an absolute abomination that is, what a desecration that is to the house of God to sacrifice this unclean animal there on the altar. Now, this desecration of the temple, it led to what's called the Maccabean Revolt. We've talked about that many times in here. How the Jewish people, they rose up. They fought back against this empire. They recaptured the temple, and they cleansed it and reinstituted their worship there. So the disciples that were standing there on the mountain with Jesus Christ, they would have immediately understood. They would have all known the story of Judas Maccabees. He was a hero. You remember when we studied the triumphal entry, we talked about all the similarities there were between his entry and the entry of the Maccabees after this revolt. They would have also known about this one called Antiochus Epiphanes. They would have also known about the stories that Daniel had told, all the visions that God had given them. But what Jesus is doing here is he's revealing to them that this prophecy that was given to the, to the prophet Daniel, that it will have a greater and fuller realization yet to come. See, this is the way that prophecies work. Oftentimes, God will deliver a prophecy to his people, and there will be an immediate, a shorter-term fulfillment of that now, but then as we look further down the line, there will be a greater, a more spiritual, a far mightier revelation that comes with this, far mightier fulfillment that comes at the end of time. Frankly, while I believe that all of what Jesus is talking here about here in Mark 13, all the way up through verse 32, I've made that clear. I believe that God is talking, that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, all the way up to verse 32 in Mark chapter 13. But I will not deny and I will not argue with you that there might not be some greater fulfillment even to this prophecy in his return. That there's not gonna be some similarities in what we see in the destruction of the temple to what we see in that day when Jesus Christ returns and destroys the kingdoms of the earth. But it seems clear to me that what Daniel wrote about when he talks about the abomination of desolation that he was looking forward to the coming of this one called Antiochus Epiphanes, this one that sacrificed a pig on the altar. It seems equally clear to me that what Jesus is doing is using this exact same language to point his men forward just 40 years into the future to what they're going to see when the temple is again desecrated and it is again destroyed. Now, there's a number of plausible explanations as to who exactly or what exactly this abomination of desolation is. Is it a group? Is it a power? Is it a spirit? Is it an individual man? I believe, I won't argue with you based on what you believe, but I believe that it was a man called Titus. His father was the emperor. He was a general. He led the Roman army as they came and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, 
brought in the Roman standard and it's representative of the power of the, the power of Rome in the form of an eagle. He brought all those things into the temple of God, places that were reserved for him. Now I need to do one last bit of housekeeping. Last week I went to great lengths to make clear to you that the great, great mystery of the gospel is that God had always intended to reconcile the world to himself. Not just believing Jews, but believing Gentiles as well. That with the sending of Jesus Christ, the destruction of the temple, that these were not plan Bs. This wasn't a last second audible. It was always God's intention that through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, he would be reconciling men to himself. That the temporary hardening, the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jewish people, that this was meant that then uh, salvation could go out to the Jewish people. To the, to the Gentile people, excuse me, that then the Jewish people would be spurred to jealousy and that they themselves would be saved as a result of this, that this was always God's plan. God's always, plan was always for salvation and a singular people through his son, Jesus Christ. But for some reason, after I spent something like 30 minutes talking to you people about that, I continue to refer to the church, this people, as a new people. Now, most of you probably didn't realize that I said that. Those of you that did hear me say it, you probably gave me the benefit of the doubt because you're good and decent people, and you know that either I misspoke, maybe I was confused, maybe I was just dead wrong, but you didn't boo me, you didn't throw tomatoes, you didn't come up to me afterwards and talk about what a dope I was. You're gracious with me like that, but it ate me up. As soon as I got done with the prayer, I walked off the stage and I was kicking myself. Why did you say new people? That gives the exact opposite idea of everything that you just talked to these people about. So allow me to say it very clearly. I believe there's a beautiful picture of this that Paul gives us in the 11th chapter of his epistle to the Romans that the church is not a new people but a continuation, a fulfillment of all that God has been doing since the very beginning. And what we see right there in the promise of the garden in Genesis 3 is the first picture of Jesus Christ coming to save the world, the one that comes from woman that will crush the head of the serpent that we see in the promises to the patriarchs, we see these signs, these symbols, these shadows, these pictures of the coming of Jesus Christ, that they will be fulfilled in him, and that even with his rejection by the Jewish people, even as those natural branches are cut off from the vine, that we will find the grafting in of the rest of the world, the Gentiles who turn and place their faith in Jesus Christ, that nationality and bloodlines, they're of no preference to God. They have nothing to do with those who will enter into the kingdom of God. It's only those that place their faith in Jesus Christ. They will find themselves as part of this people, this singular people, this one people, this people that God has always been building since the very beginning. And so now, I think we're ready to step into the text. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. In reverence to the reading of God's word, we pick back up in Mark chapter 13. We're gonna begin in verse 24. This is the word of God. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, we look not this morning to read our understanding into your word, but to have your word read into us, to be informed by what it is that you have to say, to be moved by your Holy Spirit, to understand these words and to be changed by them. So Father, we ask that you do what only you can do this morning. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So just as with the rest of Mark chapter 13, we have been trained to read these words with a very specific understanding. And frankly, it's hard not to. It's hard to hear these words and not immediately have our mind go to the return of Jesus Christ and the ends of the age. Listen to the things he's talking about. The sun and moon going dark, 
stars falling from the heavens, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, the angels gathering together the saints. You wouldn't be wrong to read these and ask, how can this point to anything other than the return of Jesus Christ? How can our hearts and our minds go to anything other than the end of the age when we read these words? This sounds like exactly the kind of thing we picture when we think about Jesus coming back, don't we? To that I'd answer yes. Because we've been trained for so long to see exactly that picture in these words. And because frankly, for the majority of my Christian life, I've not had a proper understanding of the language of the Old Testament. I've not heard these words the way the men sitting on those mountains would have heard these words. And frankly, that's the work that we must do. That's what makes it difficult about us in interpreting God's word and rightly relating and understanding God's word. We must first learn to think like a first century Jew and then we have some hope of understanding what Jesus is saying to us today. We've gotta do double the work. Whereas these men would, have, men would have heard these words and immediately known what Jesus was talking about. So again, I hold to my position that what Jesus is talking about here points forward to the destruction of the Jerusalem, the fall of the temple in the year 70 AD. So could there be some correlation between what Jesus is talking about here and what we will see when he returns in the end? Absolutely. Just as with other prophecy, we may see some of these same pictures that Jesus is painting for us with regards to the fall of the temple coming, coming forth whenever he returns. Go read 1 Thessalonians 4. You're going to find very similar language to this. And so I don't deny that there may be some greater fulfillment still yet to come. But what Jesus is talking to these men about is a thing that has already happened. And I believe that just as with last week, that when you come to hear these words, not just in relation to the men that were sitting on that mountain, not just in relation to the men that will still be here in the day when Jesus returns, but that you will see it has incredible relevance for every saint, for every member of the church living throughout all generations. That you'll find great hope great encouragement, great joy here, great anticipation as you prepare your heart to come to this table. So it begins like this, verse 24. But in those days after the tribulation, so Jesus is setting up a timeline here. He's saying immediately after the tribulation, if you're one that holds to a literal seven-year great tribulation right before Jesus' return, this doesn't break up your timeline. If you hold like I do, that this is something that has already happened, still doesn't break up our timeline. He says, in those days, I believe he's saying, in the days of 70 AD, in the days when Titus led the Roman army to destroy Jerusalem, in the days where the Christian church remembered the words of Jesus Christ and they fled Jerusalem so that they would not be destroyed, in the days when Jerusalem was sacked and almost every Jewish man living there was either killed or carried off into carried off into slavery. I believe that these are the days that Jesus is telling about here. Matthew says that he says immediately after the tribulation, and this is what he describes. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Now because there is no record of a celestial event just like this happening immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem, people have come to their own conclusions about what this is all about. So the liberal theologians, they say, well, Jesus was just wrong. It's an easy answer. Jesus was just mistaken. Jesus believed that he was going to return within the lifetime of his apostles. He believed that when he returned all of these things, these celestial events, they were going to happen. But Jesus was a man. And Jesus was mistaken. He was confused. He didn't come back. This just proves that Jesus is messed up dude just like everybody else. Of course, we know to reject that kind of thinking. And so many on the conservative side, conservative theology that is, they will say, well, no. They, they, they look to the record of Josephus, and they say, well, you know, the smoke that went up from the destruction of Jerusalem, it would have blotted out the sky, it would have blocked out the sun and perhaps the moon, and maybe that's what Jesus is talking about here. But I think the answer is, and yet again asking ourselves, what kind of language is Jesus using here? How would the men sitting there on that mountain have heard what he was saying here? Would they have taken it literally? Peter and Andrew and James and John, would they have heard what Jesus was saying, would they have heard it literally? Or is there perhaps something in their culture 
Something in the Old Testament, language similar to this, that would have immediately given them a sense of exactly what Jesus is talking about. Well, if we look to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 13, what we find there is that God has given this man an oracle regarding the destruction of Babylon. Isaiah 13, nine through 10. Listen to these words, see if they don't ring a bell. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation. That's a familiar word. To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars from heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. It's almost identical language, isn't it? I was talking about the fall of Babylon. Could you argue that perhaps the fall of Babylon is a foreshadowing of the fall of the sinful world? Again, absolutely. But this is literally an oracle, literally a prophecy about the destruction of a nation called Babylon. Listen to the words of Ezekiel, God's prophecy to him about Pharaoh in Egypt in Ezekiel 32, beginning in verse five. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land, even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven, I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. Again, back to Isaiah. Now God is giving a prophecy about the nation of Edom. He says this in Isaiah 34, four. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves falling from a vine like leaves falling from a fig tree. Again, we could go on and on with Old Testament prophecies. Anytime God was about to bring down a nation, a great political upheaval, he would use language just like this. A celestial event, something happening in the stars, in the heavens, with the sun, with the moon. This is the same kind of language that he's using here. And for so long, the Jewish people, they've been used to hearing this language used about the pagan nations, about those people that rejected Yahweh as God of the universe. And now Jesus Christ had come. The ultimate prophet was here. He had already foretold of their destruction with the cursing of the fig tree, with the cleansing of the temple. He already told them that these things would be upon them, but now he's using this same kind of language. He's telling them that you, just like the Babylonians, just like Egypt, just like the Edomites, this nation will fall. This nation will be turned upside down. And the apostles would have immediately understood what Jesus is saying, that this destruction of the temple, the desolation of Jerusalem, this is a clear political and military disaster, that God was no longer gonna deal with the people based on earthly lineage. He was no longer gonna be God of just one singular nation, that there was no people of God that could point back to their bloodlines and their family ties and their tribes and claim ownership to God. That it was only those who repented of their sin, only those who placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That the kingdom of God doesn't belong to any earthly kingdom. That any of those who reject him, they will be cast out. But those that come from any nation among all the earth, no matter how far away, no matter how separated they had been, these people that were not a people, these people that were without God and without hope in all the earth, that they would find an offer to come into the kingdom of God right here. This is what Jesus was making clear. He was also making clear to them that the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, that this wasn't a temporary thing. This wasn't a 70-year exile. There wasn't going to be a rebuilding of the temple. It had served its purpose. It was a shadow. It was a sign. It was a picture. And now the substance had come in Jesus Christ. There was no longer a need for this thing anymore. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, I get it. This sounds like the return of Jesus. We've been so trained to have this picture of Jesus Christ coming in clouds and glory at the return. And again, I'm not telling you that's not what we're going to see in the end. And this certainly draws our mind back to the scene there, the ascension in Acts 1, as the disciples are standing there and they're looking up into the sky. And we read, as they were looking, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
So we all have this idea of Jesus Christ coming, riding in on the clouds of heaven. However, I submit to you this morning that what Jesus is talking about is not his return. He's talking about his coronation. He's talking about his taking of his rightful seat at the right hand of God. He's talking about his enthronement in heaven. Have you ever heard the word parousia before? It's the word that can be translated as coming or presence or advent. It's the word that Matthew uses whenever he's speaking plainly about the return of Jesus Christ. We read this in Matthew 24, 37. For as were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. Parousia, that's a common word that is used with regards to the return of Jesus Christ, Jesus' second coming. But the word that Mark uses here in Mark 13, the word that Matthew uses in Matthew 24, 30, when he's talking about this event right here, he uses a different word. It's called erkomai. It can also be translated coming, but it can also mean arrival. Not necessarily the arrival here, but the arrival anywhere. So it seems to me that what he's talking about is Jesus' arrival at the right hand of God. He's taking his rightful place at the right hand of God on his heavenly throne. Now there's a book. I don't often recommend books to you outside the Bible, but there's a book that's been a great aid to me as I've wrestled with this and, and wrestled with my thoughts about the end times. A man called Sam Storms wrote a book called The Kingdom Come. And within that book, he's really helped me to just kind of put some of my thoughts together and see how these verses play together. And what he says is this. Here, the coming of the Son of Man is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, which speaks not of coming to earth from heaven, but of coming to God in heaven to receive vindication and authority. Jesus' arrival spoken of here in verse 26 is speaking about his vindication. See, the Jewish people, they had rejected him as Messiah and King. They rejected the kingdom that he comes to offer them. And so he'd already talked to them about his impending death and resurrection. He had told his disciples, we're not going to Jerusalem for a coronation. We're not going to Jerusalem so that I can take some earthly throne. We're going to Jerusalem so that they can reject me, smock me, spit in my face, and take my life. But three days later, I will rise again. I lay down my life, but only I can take it back up. He then tells them this magnificent temple, this entire religious system, it's all gonna come tumbling down. Not just because the people have rejected me and not just because they're under a curse, but also as evidence that I am who I say I am. You will know that I sit at my Father's right hand in part because you will watch this place crumble. In part because you will watch me pour out my judgment upon these people that rejected me as their king. I will bring my judgment upon Israel and you will see it. So with that in mind, listen again to the words that David read to us earlier out of Daniel 7 and see if this doesn't match. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a heavenly scene. This is a scene in heaven. The Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. That is God. Coming to God to receive his kingdom. And again, I tell you, the first century Jewish believers, they would have immediately seen this picture. They would have immediately understood what he's talking about. Now, in Matthew's parallel, he speaks of the Son of Man, a sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, the King James Version, I believe, gets this more accurately because what it says is we're not talking about a sign in heaven with regards to the Son of Man. It says we're talking about a sign with regards to the Son of Man who is in heaven. Do you see the difference? That Jesus Christ in heaven has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father, and you shall see an earthly sign that this heavenly thing has happened. That that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's going to use this very same language when he stands before the Sanhedrin. Just two days from this point, as he stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? 
To which Jesus replies in Mark 14, 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Matthew's parallel, he says, from now on you shall see. This isn't just a singular event. You shall see and know that the Son of Man sits at the right hand of the Father. You shall see the Son of Man who has come on clouds to the Ancient of Days, and you shall know this because of what will come within your lifetime, because of what you will see in the days to come. Again, this is a picture of heaven. It's a picture of Jesus Christ taking his throne, a throne that is always found in heaven at the right hand of his Father. And these men standing before Jesus, they were going to be able to see this proof. These men that were seated upon this mountain, he's saying, you will see this proof even within your lifetime. Now, they wouldn't see into heaven. God wasn't going to give them some special vision into heaven. They weren't going to have some special epiphany where they could see this heavenly thing that's taking place, but they would see the Son of Man taking his rightful place as they saw the destruction of the temple. They will know that he has done exactly as he has promised. Just think with me about this practically. Jesus predicted that he would die. They saw him die. Jesus predicted that he would rise again. They saw him alive. Jesus predicted that he would ascend to heaven. They stood in awe and watched him ascend. Jesus predicted that he would take his throne at the right hand of his Father. How would they see this? How would they see, how would they know, what assurance would they have that the Son of Man had all authority and power and dominion and a kingdom without end? Again, this is a heavenly scene. How could earthly men see such a thing? It's in part by this, by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. A temple that had been under construction for 80 years and just three years after its completion, it falls to the ground. This place that these men believed was indestructible, just as Jesus prophesied. Dear friends, I'm afraid that for so many of us, we have underestimated the importance of this prophecy right here. We've underestimated the weight. We think it's either about something that's never gonna happen in our lifetime, way down the line, or we think it's about something that just happened in the year 70 AD. We don't understand the effect that it has on our lives right now as the church. You may know that I sit at my Father's right hand. You will know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me in part because of what happens when this temple is destroyed. In part, what happens when the destruction comes upon Jerusalem. You've got to see this. This Old Testament cataclysmic language. Talk of a nation being overthrown, of a political upheaval. The shadows and the signs being completely dismantled. This is all proof. This is all evidence that Jesus has done exactly what he said he would do. And that he reigns from heaven today. That his judgment has come upon those that have rejected him. It's an earthly sign of a heavenly event. A physical picture of a spiritual reality. Christian, you must understand that this thing that we cling to, it isn't blind faith. This thing that we come to celebrate this morning, it isn't some mystic experience. We hold on to truth claims. We stand in this place this morning based on a set of truthful claims. If these claims aren't true, then we've got nothing. We don't just come in here to celebrate emotions. We don't just come in here to whip ourselves into some type of frenzy. We stand on the evidence provided to us in the prophets, in the apostles, in the holy word of God. We stand upon the word of God and say these things we hold to be true. We don't worship Jesus Christ in spite of lack of evidence. We worship Jesus Christ because of the evidence. And part of the evidence was the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Part of the evidence that he is who he says he is. In the resurrection, as he did not stay dead, as he rose again and revealed himself to so many people, as he ascended into heaven and as Jerusalem fell, we stand here declaring today to the world, Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do, and he's coming back as he said he will come back. That's the power in this prophecy. But there's an even greater sign here. As you look to verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Again, I know this sounds like end time stuff, talking about angels. Angelos is the word in Greek, but the most literal translation is messengers. Jesus is speaking about his messengers. Now, I don't know, is he speaking just about his earthly messengers? 
just about men and women like you and I that go out there and proclaim to the world that if they would bend their knee and confess Jesus as Lord, they will be saved? Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, perhaps is he talking about that spiritual work, that spiritual work which accompanies our general gospel call. As we go out to the world and we call them to confess, to repent, to believe, and be saved, and yet somehow, by spirit, above and beyond and behind the words that we speak, they hear the calling of God. They hear God calling dead men to life. These words that they had heard for their whole life and never made any sense up until that point, all of a sudden it's the word of life and they want it. They cling to it. It is their everything. They trust in it with their eternity. I think this is what he's talking about when he talks about the sending out of the messengers. But either way, he's talking about those that go forth with the gospel to call his saints, to call his chosen, to call his elect from the four winds of the earth, from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, all over this globe. And they go out and we preach this good news. Again, he uses the word elect here. That's those that are chosen by God, those he foreknew, those that he determined before they were even formed in their mother's womb that he would save them in exactly this way, that he sends us out to gather them in from the ends of the earth. He uses the word of a, of a trumpet sounding. That's a sign of the year of Jubilee. Much of Daniel's prophecy, much of what Daniel has to say about the abomination of desolation, it's tied to the sounding of a trumpet, to the year of Jubilee. That when the people of Israel, when they heard this trumpet sound, they would know that the time of rest had come. They had known that all indebtedness was going to be washed away, that all slaves were going to be set free, that they could rest from their labors, that the land itself would rest, that no longer do they have to strive to free themselves, no longer do they have to strive for a better life, that they could rest in the power of God, they could rest in the promise of his salvation. That's what this trumpet represents here, so that we go out and we blow this same trumpet. You've got to see this as we go out as a sign that Jesus Christ reigns. We blow this trumpet today. Announcing to the world that yes, the temple has fallen, that yes, Jerusalem has been destroyed, but that the saints are being gathered in. That by the sending of the Holy Spirit, we see in the day of Pentecost, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, we see this evidence that Jesus Christ reigns. As this gospel reaches its appointed purpose. You ever wonder how this happens? How does anybody ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? Particularly in this day and age of persecution and slander and hatred and scorn. Particularly in this day when people all over this globe, don't get it twisted just because you live in America. Not every little kid that gets baptized has his whole family show up and clap for him and then take him out to lunch afterwards. There's parts on this earth today when to be baptized, to follow after Jesus Christ and believers' baptism means certain death. So in the middle of all this, yet still the gospel thrives. Yet still God is by his spirit saving men and women. It's a proof that Jesus Christ reigns. This is a proof that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This is a proof that the one who has come against him that the God of this age who is called the devil, that he has in fact been bound from keeping the rest of the world in darkness, that no longer is the world separated and without hope from God, that they too are being brought in as the elect, as the saints, as those chosen by God. These are all signs that Jesus Christ reigns, that no matter where you are, that he can win you into this kingdom, that no matter how big your mountain of sin, he can win you into this kingdom, that no matter what you've done in this lifetime, that he is calling you into his kingdom, all evidence that Jesus Christ reigns. And so we go out in that very same authority and power. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Based on that, based on the assurance that all authority in heaven and earth is his, we go out and we proclaim this good news. Again, blowing the trumpet. This is a picture of a herald. This word for preacher it can also be translated as herald. It's to make it a pronouncement or a proclamation. We proclaim to the world that we ourselves have been brought in, that we are citizens of the unending kingdom, that we are subjects to the eternal king. Then we go out into the middle of a hostile world, a world living in absolute rebellion against God. We blow this trumpet and we proclaim, the king is summoning you. That's a whole lot different than your average gospel presentation, isn't it? This isn't Jesus' little puppy dog scratching at your heart's door. Won't you just let him in? Won't you just choose Jesus today? 
This is the king of the universe and he is summoning you. He is extending to you today an offer of peace. If you will turn away from your rebellion, if you will lay down your arms, if you will wave the white flag of surrender and bow your knee to him, you will find him to be a good and merciful king. You will come to realize that he has laid down his life to purchase the peace that he now offers to you. That if you will do this, all of your treason will be forgiven. If you reject this offer, you will find in the end that you will be destroyed. There is no room for ambivalence. There is no room for, for neutrality. This king will return and he will destroy all who've lived in rebellion and treason against him. But if you will bow your knee today, he will forgive all your treason as if it has never happened. You'll be welcomed into his kingdom, not as slaves, but as sons. You'll find that he does not welcome you begrudgingly into his kingdom. He has fought. He has given his life to buy your way into his kingdom. And he will bless you and he will keep you. He will hold fast to your soul until the very last day. You'll find that the God of this age, the one who was once your master, that he has nothing to hold over you any longer. He will set you free and protect you against even him. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the gospel that we, we pronounce to the world. This is what we herald to the lost world around us. We see a picture of an encounter similar to this as Jesus comes in contact with a, a Roman centurion. This is a Gentile. This is a man from the world. This is a man from the four winds. This is a man from the nations. And he's shown incredible faith in Jesus. And we read in Matthew 8, verse 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you hear that language? from the ends of the earth, from the east and the west, the four winds of the earth, heaven and earth, that God is gathering together his saints, that they could come, these people who were not a people, these people that had no claim to the promises of God, that they could come and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom, those that believed that they had some place within the kingdom of God based on their nationality, based on their bloodlines, based on their church membership, based on their baptism, because they preached sermons, because they were deacons, because they led Bible studies, that they believed they had a place in the kingdom of God. And he says, no, I cast you out because you have not submitted to the king of the kingdom and now I welcome in all these others. I welcome all these others that had no place in the kingdom of God. Those that beat their breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I welcome them, in, welcome them in and they recline at my table. That's the gospel. That's the mystery. That's the good news that we proclaim. And because Jesus Christ reigns, this message will not be stopped. This message will continue to change lives. This message will continue to bring citizens into his kingdom. Chosen men and women from all over the earth, from the four corners of the earth. And dear friends, that's what we come to celebrate here and now. That's what these tables represent. Look at these tables. Do you get excited when you walk in and see the tables? Please tell me you get excited. You walk into these places and you see these tables and you go, it's communion Sunday. I'm gonna meet with Jesus at his table. I pray that you feel the weight of that when you walk in here. Frankly, I pray that you come in here prepared. I pray that you don't wait until you walk in here to have that sense. But dear friends, you've gotta know that this thing is a foretaste of a feast to come. It is much more than just a show. This thing is much more than just a religious play or an exercise, please hear me. This is serious business that we were about this morning. If you're still living in rebellion against God, if you're still holding on to your treason, if you're refusing to confess your sins, if you believe that you can live for the enemy while claiming the name of Jesus Christ, do not come to this table. There's nothing for you here. You watch, 
You watch as others reach out their hand and take. You come and you stand right at the edge and you walk, watch as Jesus Christ meets with his people and he strengthens them. But dear friends, if you have not submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're continuing to try and earn your own way in his kingdom, if you believe that you can live in constant sin while never handing that over to him, dear friends, you must know that you are not his people and this table is not for you. But if you have found yourself repenting in dust and ashes, if you have stoned yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if you have waved this white flag and surrendered to him, he will receive you into his kingdom. He will offer you a place at his table. This isn't just a ceasefire. This isn't just a momentary truce. He doesn't welcome you here begrudgingly. He loves you. He loves you. He died for you because he loves you. He welcomed you to this table because he loves you. He knows who you are. Don't get it twisted. He knows who you are and he knows what comes tomorrow, but he loves you. And he welcomes you to come to his table as brothers and friends, not as slaves and outcasts. That's the picture of this table this morning. And he knows what the world around you looks like. He knows the trials that you have out there. He knows the way they reject this gospel. He knows the spiritual warfare that you're under. He knows the enemy that is prowling around, desperately seeking to devour you. He knows that you're weak and you're tired and you're weary and you're sinful and you're tired of fighting. And so he says, come to my table. I've promised you that I'm a good and faithful shepherd and I will not lose one that has been given to me. Dear friends, he tore down a nation. He sent his spirit. He died on a cross. You think he's gonna let loose now? You think he's gonna lose one now? Dear friends, Jesus Christ doesn't lose he holds you fast and he promises you, in part by what he's gonna do at this table, I will carry you through to the end. He says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Dear friends, you know how you will endure? Because Jesus Christ doesn't lose. He has all authority and all power and all dominion and a kingdom that will never waste away. Because of that, you won't be lost. So as for today, he tells you to come to his table. He's calling men and women together from the four corners of the earth. Look, we meet is a local assembly. We meet as a local congregation. We meet as a local faith family. That's right and that's good that we gather together in this way. But you must know that even as Jesus calls you together to this table, he's calling you together with the universal church. He's calling you together with the saints from all time. That he is building this people, this true temple of God with the prophets and the apostles as the foundation, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, with us as living stones. He's making you into something precious. He is building something precious and he welcomes you to come here. And dear friends, you guys must know that as you look around at your brothers and sisters here, look, this is proof that Jesus Christ reigns. The fact that you're in this place on a Sunday morning, the fact that he would welcome you to his temple, to, to his table, the fact that you don't look the way you looked yesterday, the fact that you're a new creation, the fact that his spirit dwells within you, the fact that you have new desires, the fact that your worship is now real, the fact that you can now come to his word and hear his voice, the fact that your prayer life is no longer dry, these are all signs that Jesus Christ reigns, all signs that he's done exactly what he said he's going to do. So as we prepare to come to this table, as he prepares to meet you here, you must know this is more than just a commemoration. Yes, we remember, yes, we proclaim that it's only by his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, that we have any of the gifts that we enjoy today. But this is more than just a memorial, it's a meeting. He said he will meet you here. I don't know how this thing works, but he said he's gonna meet you here. So I say to you this morning, you struggle with sin, good. You need this table worse than ever before. You tell me you don't know that you can endure one more second in this world. Good. You need this table more than ever before. You're telling me that your prayer life has gone dry. Good. You need this table more than ever before. You find your worship to be empty. Good. You need this table more than ever before. Your marriage is falling apart. Good. You need this table more than ever before. You're broke. 
You don't know if you can fight against sin anymore. You find yourself going back to the same old habits. You're scared about the state of the world. Your children are lost. You don't even know if yourself are saved at times. Good. You need the table more than ever before. He will meet you here. He will strengthen you here. You will find that he is a good and faithful shepherd. You'll find that you walk out of this place different than you walked in because he will meet you here. Father God, we praise you. We praise you, Father, that you have not left us where you found us. You'd have been well within your rights. It would have been just and righteous for you to leave us in our sin, completely and hopelessly separated from you. And yet, Father, we stand here today as saints around your throne, not because of anything that we have done, but because of all that he has done. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and what this table represents. His body his blood, the reminder that he is fully man, that Jesus Christ condescended to take upon himself the fullness of humanity, to live the perfectly righteous life that we could never live, to die in our place, taking our sin upon him as he hung there on that cross, that you poured out your wrath upon your son so that you could save sinners, that he then rose again to prove that he is who he says he is, that he ascended to your right hand, that he reigns on high even now, Father, we desire to be a people in whom he reigns, that his kingdom comes to this earth as he reigns and he rules in the lives of his people. Help us to be those people. Father God, it's with great anticipation that we look forward to this table. We pray that you do what only you can do in the moments to come. We love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.